From WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Terry Gross with Fresh Air Weekend. Today, Swedish actor Alexander Skarsgård talks about playing a Viking out for revenge in the new movie The Northman. Skarsgård played a vampire who'd been a Viking a thousand years ago in HBO's True Blood. More recently, he was in succession as a rich tech CEO, and he played an abusive husband in Big Little Lies. Also, comic writer and actor Jesse Klein describes the early days of motherhood when she felt, quote, invisible to the mainstream world, over the hill, like a Swiffer on legs, not having sex, and generally functioning as a kind of automated milk and comfort dispensing machine. She's written a new collection of personal essays. Klein was the head writer of the Comedy Central series Inside Amy Schumer. And Ken Tucker reviews Bonnie Raitt's new album. My first guest, Alexander Skarsgård, stars as a Viking in the new movie The Northmen, set toward the end of the 10th century. The story is based on Norse mythology. In the HBO series True Blood, Skarsgård played Eric Northman, who became a vampire a thousand years ago when he was a Viking. More recently, Skarsgård played an abusive husband in Big Little Lies, for which he won an Emmy, Golden Globe, a Critics' Choice Television Award, and an award from SAG, the Screen Actors Guild. In the latest season of HBO's Succession, he played a tech billionaire. Alexander Skarsgård grew up in Stockholm, Sweden, where he's joining us from now. He's the son of the prominent actor Stellan Skarsgård, who's appeared in movies, stage, and TV since the 60s. And he's the brother of Bill Skarsgård, who's famous for his role as Pennywise, the dancing clown in the supernatural horror film It, based on a Stephen King story. Alexander Skarsgård had his first film role at the age of seven, and a film he made at the age of 13 made him famous in Sweden. After that, he took a seven-year break from acting. When Skarsgård was growing up in Sweden, he watched Viking movies and learned about some of the mythology from his grandfather. The new movie, The Northman, begins with his character as a young prince who witnesses his father, the king, be murdered by the prince's uncle, who then makes off with the prince's mother, the queen. The boy dedicates his life to avenging his father, saving his mother, and killing his uncle. The film skips ahead to 20 years later, when Skarsgård's character Amleth is part of a group of marauding Vikings who plunder and burn villages and slaughter the people living there. As one character describes him, he's a beast cloaked in man flesh. He acts like a beast, and he howls like a beast, as you'll hear in this scene in which the Vikings, on a night before a raid, are doing a warrior dance, chanting around a bonfire at night. The chant turns into roars, and at the end, you hear Skarsgård howl. Alexander Skarsgård, <laughs> welcome to Fresh Air. <laughs> did, did you have a voice left after that? Thank you very much, Terry. I'm uh, honored to be speaking to you. That, that is quite a howl. Uh, I basically didn't have a voice for seven months because we did. that was one moment, but there's probably 15, 20 other scenes in the movie in which my character kind of has a, has a crank it up to 11. Um, and uh, I guess I didn't use my diaphragm correctly, because I, I was, uh, yeah, I, my, my voice was completely gone. Where did you find that rage in yourself? Um, 
Ooh, that's a good question. I, um, in the clip we just heard, my character, it's a transformation. My character is a, a Viking berserker and his spirit animal is, um, is a hybrid of a wolf and a bear. And there, it's this ritual that they go through before, um, before a raid of a village. And uh, it was about shedding your humanity in a way, letting go of your huma humanity and, and uh, turning into a beast. So um, tapping into a, a more atavistic, more animalistic state. And uh, <laughs> it, it was quite cathartic. I'm, I'm quite a mellow guy. I, I don't scream a lot. I, I don't like arguments. I don't like fights. I'm very... Well, I'm very Swedish, I guess. <laughs> but uh, uh, so in a way, it was it was quite thrilling and, and exciting to to shoot those scenes because it uh, I definitely got to tap into something I, I don't tap into very often to kind of find that that inner animal and let it out. So you grew up in Stockholm. Your father is actor Stellan Skarsgård, and um, people probably know him from Goodwill Hunting. More recently from Dune, he was in HBO's Chernobyl, Mamma Mia, The Avengers, uh, Melancholia, Thor. So uh, there's a lot of diverse films people might, may know him from. What were you exposed to about acting when you were a child? Like, How did acting look at you before you were seven, before you had an acting role yourself? Um, my, my dad did repertoire theater in Stockholm when I was a child, so he would do rehearsed during the day at the Royal Dramatic Theater in Stockholm. So he would rehearse during the day and then perform at night. And uh, we worked with, with Igmar Bergman on stage when, when, I, was, when I was a child. Uh, he worked with Igmar know. Bergman? Yeah, yeah. I did not. Igmar Bergman was just some old dude. Uh, so I, I wasn't really impressed by that when I was five, six years old. It was more fun to hang out back in the hair and makeup department in the, of, of the theater and play around with... Um, prosthetics and wigs and stuff. So, and then my father's dear friend uh, Alan Iadval, who's a he was a, a fantastic Swedish uh, director and actor, um, needed a seven year old kid for for a movie, and uh, he was over at our house having dinner and saw a seven year old kid running around. So he he asked if <laughs> I had any interest in, in in being in the movie, and so that's kind of how I got started. So you, you became kind of famous in Sweden after you started in a TV series when you were 13. You've said that being a child actor in Sweden is different from being a child actor in Hollywood. What's the difference? Well, first of all, the scale, it's, it's basically like being famous in Idaho. No shade on Idaho, but it's obviously smaller than being famous internationally or, or uh, in all states. It's um, There's only, yeah, it's a small country, Sweden, so... It, it's a very small industry, and um, being famous wasn't. Uh, I, I never had a desire to become an actor, and it was never something I, I pursued. It uh, when I worked on Wolkans Vad with the the, the the movie when I was seven with Alan Edval, um, that led to a couple of other other jobs, and, and 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 so for a couple of years I did work, or I guess six years until uh, I was thirteen. On a couple of smaller Swedish productions, uh, and um, and then I did it. It, it, it wasn't a series; it was a, a made-for-TV movie, basically a, an hour-long movie called "Hundens uh, Lug," the Smiling Dog. And uh, this is back when there were there were only two channels in Sweden, and obviously pre-internet. So whatever was on, people tended to watch. So it got the impact of that quite 
changed my life quite a bit. It, uh, it was suddenly recognized and uh, it, it made me uncomfortable. I think 13 is, a, is an <laughs> awkward, uncomfortable age for most kids, but to then be in the spotlight and to be recognized and be different when you go to school, the fact that other people are giggling or whispering and are watching you in a different way made me very um, uh, very uncomfortable. And it, it I lost confidence and uh, just was not comfortable with that. And so I, I, I decided to to quit and not not do any more projects. And again, it wasn't a, a, a monumental, difficult decision, stepping away from it and to have a, I guess, a n- normal childhood wasn't, wasn't a difficult decision for me. I think it was during the period when you were not acting that you uh, were in the Swedish military doing counterterrorism. Who were the suspected terrorists of the time? It would have been, this was in the late 90s, around the millennia, basically. So the job of our unit was to secure the archipelago, the islands outside of Stockholm. And I went into it not for any heroic or patriotic reasons. I went into it because I'm from a, f- a very bohemian family of, of pacifists. I grew up in Södermalm, which is a, a very artistic neighborhood of South Stockholm um, and surrounded by people that were not uh, very physical, not very active, not very <laughs> outdoorsy. We It was mostly dinner parties with lots of wine flowing and conversations about art. So I, at, at the age of 19, I, I, I wanted to do it more as a personal challenge and, and, um, and, and uh, I was, it, it felt so kind of diametrically opposite my upbringing. So I, I wanted to, 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 I guess, challenge myself and go do something that, was, um, that I had never done before or experienced before. How was the experience? How did it work out? Um, it was horrible and, and wonderful. It was a year and a half and it was very challenging uh, physically and mentally. But I think I, I learned a lot about myself and about um, working with others because we worked in, in, in small units, myself and three other guys out in these islands. So we're very, um, we operated very independently. Um, so um, I formed some strong friendships and uh, I'm in hindsight glad I did it, but uh, yeah, I want to hear about I, I, the horrible parts. <laughs> what, what, was, what was horrible about it? No, they they test you obviously, and it, it, it's it, when you go through on basic training, and then when you're out, and, and, and they want you to kind of find your limits and uh, physically and mentally, and challenge you so that you 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 can operate even under distress. So that that was something that as is quite a spoiled comfortable kid from 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 an urban area in in, in Stockholm where uh, I never had to kind of deal with the elements if it was raining I just didn't go out or if it's cold I put on an extra jacket so that that was all uh, kind of a I wouldn't say shock but definitely something I wasn't accustomed to it sounds like good training for the Northmen. <laughs> um, it, it was basically, yeah, <laughs> it was pretty much the same. Northmen, we crawled around in mud for seven months, and um, that's basically what I did for a year and a half in the, in the military. My guest is Alexander Skarsgård. He stars in the new Viking movie, The Northmen. We'll hear more of our conversation after a break, and Ken Tucker will review Bonnie Raitt's new album, which has elements of blues, reggae, rock, and funk. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. 
Let's get back to my interview with Alexander Skarsgård. He stars in the new Viking epic, The Northman. He's also known for his roles in True Blood, Diary of a Teenage Girl, Big Little Lies, and the most recent season of Succession. You were very self-conscious as a young actor at the age of 13, and you didn't want to act because you you didn't like being different, you didn't like all the attention. When you got the role of Eric the Vampire in the HBO series True Blood a few years ago, um, you became a star from that. And not only that, you became a kind of heartthrob. Um, So I'm wondering what that was like for you as somebody who had previously rejected the idea of being noticed as an actor, you know, offset. Oh, suddenly I loved fame. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I was, I was old enough and 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 a bit more um, confident and secure to be able to handle all the chaos around being an actor and 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 um, and being on a show that gets a lot of uh, that hit kind of hits the zeitgeist and gets a lot of attention. I was able to still have a private life and um, I want to say a, a public persona, but knowing when you're out in the world meeting people and, and, and instead of being when someone recognized me or came up to me when I was younger, it made me uncomfortable. And instead I tried to kind of not lean into it, but at least embrace it. And, and genuinely being, um, when someone recognizes you and they're, they like your character or a movie or, or a show you're on, um, why shouldn't that be a great feeling? Why shouldn't you feel grateful for that and and be excited that what you've done, your work has actually reached someone and, and meant something to someone? So I try to th- approach it from that angle to feel take joy out of that. And the fact that, again, I'd been unemployed and, and struggling to find work for many years. Not only had I gotten a job, but I gotten a job that um, people actually cared about. And that is a wonderful feeling. Uh, it's not. That's definitely not always the case. And that mindset helped me um, w- when it got crazy around True Blood. Um, in Big Little Lies, you played Nicole Kidman's husband, and you were somebody who had to travel a lot. You thought felt like you were being shut out of the family, and this would like this and other things would lead to fights with Nicole Kidman's character and you'd get like really angry and end up like hitting her or shoving her against the wall or kind of strangling her but not to death and these scenes would typically end with you both having sex Mm. Um, and when I interviewed her recently she said that in between these takes of like anger and physical force that would end up in sex that she would lie on the floor in her underwear with a towel over her and she couldn't get up. It wasn't like she physically couldn't get up. She emotionally couldn't get up. And the people around her, the crew, would ask, are you all right? And she'd be crying and saying, yes, I'm fine, because she was mm. trying to be professional. I'm wondering what impact those scenes had on you. Yeah, they were some of the most difficult days I've experienced on a set. Um, and Nicole and I became very close on, on uh, that experience really brought us together and, and it, it demanded complete trust between us uh, in order to go into that darkness physically and mentally. Uh, those scenes were so horrific and um, 
But we spent many days and weeks leading up to the shoot talking about the relationship. And we were both creatively excited because it felt like a nuanced, accurate depiction of an abusive relationship. Um, Perry was not a, 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 a cliche or a stereotype of an, of an abusive husband. Um, and you could understand Celeste why she might have been drawn to him and why she might be conflicted in the beginning when he's oscillating between the light and the darkness. And, and that was something that we spent a lot of time talking about. And then going into those very, very intense scenes, they, they, were, uh, they were horrific to shoot. And uh, we had to check in with each other nonstop before takes, after takes to make sure that, because we, we both had to commit so completely, uh, um, but it was, it was draining. It was draining, but walking away from it was, when we wrapped it up, we, uh, I love Nicole so much and it was absolutely wonderful to be reunited with, with her on The Northman, this time as my mother, but again, also a very dark, weird, twisted relationship, but I think because we had that, um, we we established that trust on Big Little Lies. That was really valuable when we started shooting The Northman, uh, uh, having that strong connection. But no, those, those, those days, like the one you 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 mentioned, they they were uh, they were horrible. They were horrible. It's so odd that Nicole Kidman played your wife in Big Little Lies and your mother in the new film The Northman. Yeah, it was because after Big Little Lies, we basically said. Let's find something to do again, um, but maybe something lighter. And then two years later, when I, um, when, when we had the first draft of The Northman, I, with Robert Eggers and all the producers, everyone agreed that Nicole would be the perfect Queen Gudrun. Um, so I, yeah, I called her and I said, "Well, I got something here. Uh, I don't, I don't know how much lighter it is. Uh, it's also quite dark, but we were just thrilled when when she joined us." And after this, I promise the next project we do together will be on a musical or a rom-com or something. I think the closest you've been in a musical is maybe the Lady Gaga video of her song Paparazzi. That's true. It's also quite dark. We try to kill each other in that one. Yeah, you push her off a balcony. I I do, I do. (laughs) You carry her onto the balcony, place her on the rail of it, give her a very passionate (laughs) kiss, and then just kind of push her off. (laughs) And by the end of the song, by the end of the video, she's poisoned you. Um, (laughs) So, um, but you know, it's, it's a, it's a music video. It's like a seven minute music video, but it's packaged like it's a movie, you know, Uh, like paparazzi starring (laughs) Lady Gaga and Alexander Skarsgård. And it's kind of written in letters like an old fashioned movie. Was that her attempt to like make a movie or, you know, this is correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure it was her first album. I did not know who she was at the time. A friend of mine, LA based Swedish director named Jonas Åkerlund, directed that video. So, and I was shooting True Blood wasn't even out yet. So this was I was shooting season one of True Blood, and he called and asked if I he's going to do this music video with an artist named Lady Gaga. And he explained the premise of it, and it sounded super fun. It was going to sh- be shot over a weekend in Malibu, and I said, "Yeah, Jonas, I'll come do this this Lady Goo Goo video any day." <laughs> I don't know who she is, but it sounds great. <laughs> Did it lead to anything that surprised you? 
No, not, I mean, not more than, we had a fantastic week and it was super fun. She was great to, to play with. And uh, Jonas and I had to teach her some Swedish because we speak Swedish in the beginning of it. And um, she was wonderful, absolutely fantastic. Uh, and, but it was, again, two fun, great days. Um, and I was like, well, this song is catchy. Best of luck to you, Lady <laughs> Goo Goo. <laughs> and had no idea that what, what would, how big she would get. When you were growing up and your father, Stellan Skarsgård, was acting and had all these, like, bohemian friends and, uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, artists and actors and so on, you, you've said that you wished he was more ordinary. What kind of father did you wish you had when you were going through that stage of wishing that, like, your father was like the other father's? Well, I remember my friend, uh, a friend in my class, his dad uh, wore a gray suit and drove a Saab and had a briefcase and worked in an office. And that was my dream dad. I was like, oh my God, what if I had a dad like that? That would have been the dream. What a, um, my buddy is so lucky because my dad would wear like some flowy dress if or nothing and just walk around with a glass of red wine and the hair standing up and like just, um, <laughs> you know, I, uh, I just wanted, I just wanted to be normal and not different and not stand out. And so everything about my family was quite atypical. So everything about it that I've, that subsequently came to embrace and, and love about my family, or I was at an age where to the point of like, leaving uh the film industry um because i just wanted i didn't want attention i just i don't want i just wanted to blend in and be like everyone else and having a dad like like stellan definitely didn't help you said he was wearing flowy dresses yeah he would wear like uh or some like arabian garb like some long something he found on a trip somewhere or a sarong which definitely wasn't a thing in stockholm in the in, in the <laughs> 80s um and uh, yeah, it, it just definitely not a great suit like my friend's father. Have you worked with your... Well, I know you work with your father in Melancholia. Have you worked yeah. with him in other films? What's that like for you? No, we haven't. We worked together. So Melancholia, we had... he play, Dad plays my best man at my wedding. Um, and we had one or two scenes together. And it was... I loved every second of it. But that was it. So it wasn't really a meaty rich, interesting relationship. It was, um, again, a couple of days, but I would love to, to do something. Um, it's just about finding the, the right project. But, but yeah, no, that, that'd be a dream. So thank you so much for doing this. Thank you, Terry. This has been <laughs> such a pleasure. And uh, to end the whole two-month-long press tour with the, a conversation with Terry Gross on Fresh Air, is, it is an honor. Alexander Skarsgård stars in the new movie, The Northman. Bonnie Raitt just released her first album in over six years. It's called Just Like That, and it finds her working in a variety of genres, including blues, reggae, rock, and funk. In April, Rate was honored with a Lifetime Achievement Award at the Grammys. But rock critic Ken Tucker says her creative lifetime has been revitalized and extended by this highly eclectic new album. Just 
One thing that strikes you immediately upon listening to this album just like that is that this is Bonnie Raitt stretching out, extending the boundaries of her signature sound. Listen to her cover of a Toots and the Maytall song, Love So Strong, a sturdy chunk of reggae that she'd planned to sing as a duet with her friend Toots Hibbert, but he died before that could happen in 2020. In the middle of the song, she takes a slide guitar solo that is fleet and fluid, winding around the beat and the clattering drums of Ricky Fatar. With the exception of the early 90s, when the startling commercial success of her album Nick of Time made her briefly ubiquitous, Raid has always been more of what they used to call a journeyman than either a cult item or a star. Despite all that nice late career recognition, such as her recent Lifetime Achievement Grammy, to call Raid an icon ignores the fact that she's never wanted to be worshipped. Her voice remains a subtle instrument, earthy with an ache around the edges its smoothness textured by a fine grittiness. Its sly intimacy is, as always, a deep pleasure. No one drive me crazy Like the crazy you drive me Blast off planet Venus Raid takes her sadness about people who've died over the past few years and transfigures that sense of loss into a roiling passion that bursts out as a rocker called Living for the Ones. Go ahead and ask me how I make it through. 
Tate wrote the bittersweet lyrics to Livin' for the Ones, and this album is unusual for having four songs written by Rate, who spent most of her career interpreting other writers' songs. She said in recent interviews that she was partially inspired to write after thinking deeply about the death of John Prine in 2020. You can hear Prine's influence in Down the Hall, in which he plucks her guitar and sings in the character of a person tending to frail patients in a hospice. I had the flu in the prison infirmary My last day I looked up and saw A man wheeled round the corner Down his skin and bones, that's all I asked the nurse where he was going She said, hospice down the hall He probably won't be in there long Any day we'll get the call If they let family in She said not really at the end Truth is a lot don't have someone No friends or next of kin The thought of those guys That is a voice of compassion and generosity Qualities many of us encounter all too rarely these days Bonnie Raitt has always been an intriguingly complex figure a singer-songwriter with a social conscience who's kept sloganeering out of her music, a lusty, salty, good-time gal with the work ethic of a disciplined artist, a vocalist who treats romance and relationships as things that require patience and maturity. At the age of 72 and 50 years since the release of her first album, she's poured a lifetime of those attributes into this new one. Ken Tucker reviewed Bonnie Raitt's new album called Just Like That. Coming up, comic, writer, and actor Jessie Klein. She has a new memoir called I'll Show Myself Out, Essays on Midlife and Motherhood. This is Fresh Air Weekend. When my next guest, Jessie Klein, won an Emmy for her role as head writer of the Comedy Central series Inside Amy Schumer, it was just three months after she'd given birth. As the ceremony was ending... Instead of heading right to the after party with her friends and colleagues, she had to go to a dressing room set aside for her where she could pump. That entailed figuring out how to unzip her fancy dress by herself and put on her nursing bra. The Emmy didn't negate that she was still exhausted, uncomfortable in her post-childbirth body, and about to return to the daily struggles of her new life. She told that story in her 2016 book of personal essays. Her new book, picks up the story from there and is all about the anxieties, the joys, and hard work of being a new mother and the difficulty of figuring out who her new unrecognizable self was. When the book concludes, she's in her mid-40s and her son Asher is approaching his fifth birthday. The essays are funny serious or serious funny. The book is called I'll Show Myself Out, Essays on Midlife and Motherhood. Jesse Klein is now the showrunner and an executive producer of the new Showtime comedy series, I Love That For You, about a group of people working at a home shopping network. It stars SNL alums Vanessa Bayer and Molly Shannon. Jesse Klein is also an actor on the Netflix animated series Big Mouth and has also written for the series Dead to Me, Transparent, 
and Saturday Night Live. Jesse Klein, welcome to Fresh Air. I enjoyed the book so much. Thank you for returning to our show. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me. I'd like you to start with a reading. And um, this is this is one of the serious parts. <laughs> and and this is in a, in a chapter where you're thinking about what is a hero? You know, the classic definition of a hero is like a guy, and it's, it's always a man who sets out on this perilous journey to right some wrong or fight some battle. And after facing danger after danger, returns home to his wife or mother or daughter or whoever, but all the women have stayed home and (laughs) the man (laughs) has become the hero. Um, And you're trying to like rewrite that narrative in your mind so that mothers are heroes, so that you as a mother can see yourself as a hero. And this is part of that thought process. Every mother you know is in this fight with herself. The sword that hangs over you is a sword of exhaustion, of frustration, of patience run dry, of her bladder practically exploding like a water balloon as she enters her third hour of sitting in a chair trying to get you to sleep. It's the sword of missing a meal because there wasn't time to eat while she was packing a diaper bag with the endless amount of stuff you needed to go to the park. The sword of sneaking one bite of string cheese while sitting on the edge of a damp sandbox the sword of indignation at how little she feels like a human when she so often has to look and behave like an animal. And mostly, and this is the spikiest truth, it is the sword of rage, the rage and shock of how completely she must annihilate herself to keep her child alive. Ultimately, the hope of impossible delight almost always wins out over the impossible torment. I know this because here I am, alive, writing this, And here you are, alive, reading it, which means our mothers did what heroes do. They kept us all alive to tell our own tales one day. And what I can tell you is that so much of the heroism of motherhood is the ability to swallow the sword, to swallow the pain and frustration, and keep everything inside. I want to pick up on a line from that reading about how completely you have to annihilate yourself to keep your child alive. Can you talk a little bit about that? (laughs) Sure. Um, Yeah, I mean, I guess that was one of the most shocking aspects for me of what I experienced becoming a mother that I, you know, people always tell you there's no, there's sort of no way to know exactly what, what being a parent will be like. And that's definitely true. But you kind of feel like, oh, well, I have an idea. (laughs) And then I really didn't. Um, And I just think, you know, all of your kind of former identity and the things you just do on a daily or minute-to-minute basis, the clothes you wear, the way you think of yourself, um, it just all kind of has to explode away because um, the baby slash child is just... It's so all-encompassing. And people say that all the time, but you don't really, there's just kind of no way to comprehend how completely your old identity kind of vanishes, I guess. Or at least that was my experience of it. Did you have a period during early motherhood when you were trying to adjust to your new life and your new self and your new body where you were having second thoughts about becoming a mother? Um, (laughs) well, this is one of those moments, Terry, where it's kind of the crux of like, what was hard 
about writing this book is that it feels like um, so terrifying to answer that question, yes. Um, it feels like one of the biggest cultural taboos is to say that you've had a second thought about being a mother or, or honestly, even to just really to talk about the hard stuff. Um, but I, and I can't speak for all moms. I can only speak for myself, but I also feel like I could speak for a lot of my friends maybe, but, but yeah, of course there are those moments where you're like, I can't, I can't believe I've gotten myself into this. And of course I, you know, love my son beyond anything. He's the thing I love most in the world. And I did feel that way from the beginning. And I also felt all these other things. And I think it's that and that our culture and our society just doesn't want to accept that both of these feelings can live side by side. Yeah. Yeah. We don't like contradictions very much. <laughs> no, we really love a black and a white. We yeah. don't love a gray. So let's rewind the clock a little bit. Um, and this might sound like, you know, an obvious question that gets an obvious answer. But why did you want to become a mother? Because not everybody does. No, not everybody does, and nor should everyone. I I will say I'm really like one of those people that just is really to each their own. I remember um, many years ago I was in a writer's room. This was long before I had kids. I was, I guess, in my maybe early 30s, and someone said to me, well, you know, you just have to have kids because... <laughs> Because, um, I mean, it makes me laugh now, but I was like, ugh. He said, you, you just have to have kids because if you don't have, you don't really know what love is until you have kids. <laughs> and I now have a kid, and I'm like, no, I don't agree with that. I think I knew what love was. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I got it. I mean, I've been loved. I love people. I'm loved by somebody, you know, if lucky enough to be loved by a few others, different capacities, daughter, friend, you know, at the time girlfriend, whatever. Anyway, um, so yeah, I, I, I've now been around the barn on it and I can say I don't agree with that. <laughs> but um, in terms of, uh, so yeah, why did I become a mother, Terry? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I think there was a huge part of me that, um, that wanted to, especially um, I, I, after I got married. Um, my husband very much wanted to have a kid and I, I was still very, I would say a little bit ambivalent about it. I definitely knew that I, I had never been a very maternal person. Um, I love that you thought this would be an obvious answer. So I talked for seven <laughs> hours, but, um, I'd never been a very maternal person. I, there was a part of me that thought I wouldn't have kids. And then after I got married, I ended up kind of doing a couple of tests that I can't remember the name of anymore just to check my sort of fertility status um, because I was like, you know, having a bit of a career moment. And I was like, if I do become a mom, I'm going to leave it till the last possible moment I can leave it, which I kind of thought in today's world, I, you know, I was like, maybe when I'm 50 or something or <laughs> for uh, some late later. And then um, the test revealed that I was actually uh, had like half an egg left and was, it wasn't going to be easy and I needed to go through all this fertility stuff. And then as soon as I found out that I might not be able to have a child, I really went into a spiral about it and was just, I really 
I just wanted to have one. You said something like, before I had kids, you have one child in this book. Do you have another child? No, 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 no. I have absolutely not. No. I mean, I was just saying kids and uh, sort of, you know, before you have kids, before one has kids. I I have kid. I love my kid. I will not be having another kid. Was there anything that felt really good to let go of that you no longer had to do because you were so busy being a mother? Um, I mean, I think every parent will tell you, like, you know, one of the best things about it is it's just like the excuse that never gets tired. If you want to get out of something, you're just like, oh, the baby. (laughs) And you just, it's like, you never have to go to a party you don't want to go to again. You get a full pass. And those excuses are generally pretty valid. Um, So that's a nice thing. I think one of the things I really cherish about becoming a mother is that there's just, you're so busy you're keeping a person alive and it does give you this kind of, um, I'll call it no Fs left to give vibe about your life. And a lot of that vanity, a lot of kind of also trying to be, make nice with other people in certain ways, like having to apologize for things. You just kind of stop doing that. And that feels in some ways like a superpower. Yeah, well, what were the kinds of things you stopped apologizing for? I think just um, anytime you need to ask for something, I just think as women, you know, we're so used to sort of saying I'm sorry in this very reflexive way, almost as like just an opening gambit to any sentence <laughs> that you say. Like, I'm sorry, can I, you know, you just, um, we actually on Inside Amy Schumer had done a sketch about... Um, I remember that sketch. I love that sketch. It's a great it's sketch. It's several women sitting around together and everything they say starts with, I'm sorry. Every Yeah, it's actually, it's like a group of like incredibly impressive scientists and researchers at a conference and they still all say, I'm sorry, just endlessly. And um, I think Amy's sister Kim, I believe, wrote that sketch. Anyway, and it really changed my life in general, but definitely once becoming a mother, you just, I, I think there's just a sense of urgency and both urgency and power where just like those little things just throughout the day I don't want to have to apologize for like moving through the world as I am just trying to get my baby from morning to night like unscathed and safe (laughs) One of the things you write about in in the book is the kind of tensions in a marriage that a new baby can create. Um, Did that happen in your marriage? Sure, yeah. I mean, I think it's extremely common. I think, like, there's an old, like, the saying that, like, you know, when a baby, a new baby is born, it's like a bomb goes off in your your house and in your marriage because it's, it is, I mean— the baseline thing that's going on is no one's sleeping, you know, and that is like one of the primary forms of like military military torture that exists is like sleep deprivation. No one is at their best just because you are so tired. And so I feel like that's kind of honestly the, just the baseline is like anything, like just in a normal sort of pre-baby life, like a lot of things you're just, when you're awake, you're much more pleasant. <laughs> and like, I remember when we had to sleep train him, like you have to sleep train a baby when they're like around four months old where they have to learn to be in their crib. And that's something where 
I fully lost my mind. I mean, I just could not, I just couldn't do it. I couldn't hear him crying. And I was sort of of the mind to be like, well, I'll I'll just Velcro myself (laughs) just with a four-month-old baby. I just could not like let him cry it out. And um, my husband was like, we've got to do it this way. And he was very regimented about sort of following a plan and doing a process and and it was and and a lot of people had told me like when you sleep train like the mom has to kind of just get kicked out <laughs> like <laughs> because i mean i literally went up to the roof one night like we just were almost in like almost not we weren't in a physical altercation but it was as close as we've ever come or i think i just also we were so tired and i was like I was trying to go in the baby's room and he was like, you will not go in that room. I I think I really became like such a bad, like a bad TV scene of me being like, do not block me from my baby. And he was like, you're losing your mind. And I think I ultimately did just like pour a glass of wine and go up to like our roof and just chilled out while he sweated it out. And And I was very grateful because it totally worked. And he taught the baby how to sleep. Well... I think we should end with Beyonce. Yeah, let's take it to Beyonce. A song of hers that you played over and over for a time. Um, Well, tell us about the song that you loved, especially. Oh, yes. I got very obsessed with, um, well, like everyone else is very obsessed with the entire uh, Lemonade album. And then I was specifically obsessed with the song Hold Up, uh, which I conservatively would say I listened to two billion times. (laughs) What was it about the song? I mean, the song is about um, jealousy. I think it taps into a little bit of craziness that even like spills over beyond being about the jealousy. I, you know, at the moment that album came out, I was really in like the full throes of like toddler land, um, like, or I guess even a little younger. And I think there was like a constant feeling of like, rage like just always feeling a bit thwarted in life in general and exhausted and definitely bickering with the husband and kind of horny and not like connecting and and just drive but like I remember driving around in my <laughs> I, I do have a walnut brown Prius which is not a popular color for a Prius but um and just like feeling that that like just bursting kind of shock and rage at like the circumstances that I was emotionally in. And there was something about that song that just, I would blast it from my window all the time. And uh, it was just really cathartic. Okay. So let's end with hold up and um, Jesse Klein, thank you so much for talking with us. It's really just been a pleasure. Well, thank you so much for having me. Jesse Klein's new book is called I'll Show Myself Out, Essays on Midlife and Motherhood. Hold up, they don't love you like I love you. Slow down, they don't love you like I love you. Back up, they don't love you like I love you. Step down, they don't love you like I love you. Can't you see there's no other man above you? What a wicked way to treat the girl that loves you. Hold up, they don't love you like I love you. Hold down. Something don't feel right Because it ain't right Especially coming up after midnight 
I smell your secrets, and I'm not too perfect to ever feel this worthless. How did it come down to this? Scrolling through your call list. I don't wanna lose my pride, but I'ma me up. A know that I kept it sexy, and know I kept it fun. There's something that I'm missing, maybe my head for one. What's worst? Looking jealous or crazy? Jealous Fresh Air Weekend crazy. is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Salat, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shurrock, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, and Joel Wolfram. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. I'm Terry Gross.